This is Talk is Sheep, the official podcast of the Wild Sheep Society of BC, brought to you by Sitka Come along as we bring conversations that matter to you into the high alpine. This episode is sponsored by our conservation partner, Swarovski Optic. Thank you, Sitka Gear and Swarovski Optic, for investing in healthy wildlife and sustainable ecosystems. Gentlemen, we've got uh, Mr. Bone on on tonight, and we've got the legend of Wild TV, Mr. Joe Pell. Joe, welcome to the podcast. Great to have you back, brother. Oh, man. Good to be back. Thank you very much. Good to see you guys. Been a long time coming. And I have to say, uh, for an intro to we're doing this as a bit of a late night meeting right here to start it out with Mr. Bone. That is just about the best the best intro line you can give a guy, I think. <laughs> that didn't There's nothing wrong with that. I'm, I'm quite all right with that. <laughs> I thought you said that was the one thing that was off limits. Yeah. <laughs> well, I guess everything everything's out the door now. Here we go. It's all well, on the table. Uh, Let's go. Uh, so I never get to talk to Jesse. I never get to talk to Joe. We got a podcast for this. It's... it's uh, well, at least we're getting the chat. And, you know, these are always the fun ones, too, when you get a couple of, I don't know, I consider you my buddies. I'm sure I'm the guy behind the behind my hey. back. You're like, hey, he's not my buddy. Um, hey, but, sh- uh, those are big words. Real <laughs> quick out of the gate, Kyle. <laughs> um, the one thing that's a little lacking here is I don't have any adult beverages. You guys got anything good going on? It's kind What's- of funny. I poured water in my mug right here and i came down my wife's like do you have a drink you're going down to do a podcast do you have a drink and i was like it's actually (laughs) water for once it's water so i guess we're all on our best behavior tonight it's a week we're in season kyle we gotta stay we gotta stay on stay on it season's not over nobody has any beverages during season everybody knows (laughs) that right (laughs) i will say that there's two sheep down with two of us on this podcast. So I'm not so worried about sheep shape these days. I'm just saying, Jesse, no, just saying. I don't want to talk about it. You've still got three days left. So (laughs) I don't want to talk about it. Okay. So Joe, welcome to the podcast. Awesome to have you back. And uh, you don't really need any introductions. You've been on the podcast a ton here. Um, You know, you've been on, uh, I think it's been about 18 months. I haven't looked back, but it's been a while, but, What's going on in the world of uh, the edge? What's going on with Joe? What's uh, you had some? You had a pretty freaking epic year, I'm understanding. Uh, yeah, the the season so far is off to a pretty good start on my end over here. Uh, um, I think I'm recording my fifth season with the show now. It's kind of crazy how fast it's blown by. Um, but yeah, I've been with the show now for five seasons. Uh, Jesse has actually been in the field with me a few times this year, filming some stuff with me, which has been a lot of fun. Um, what have I been up to? I started out the year I was out with, uh, Ben Storak. We were doing some cougar hunting along the, uh, the Fraser there. Um, we ended up not harvesting. We had some opportunities, but didn't harvest a cat on that trip. It's still a great trip. The idea is to pull a sheep killer out of the hills there. Um, so we're being very selective on that one, but I'll go back out later this season, finish that off. Then I headed down to Texas on an archery audad with, uh, Mr. Aaron Snyder. You guys have had him on the show quite a few times, I believe. So, uh, him and I had a great hunt down there and we, we harvested a great ram. He's actually this guy right here. Um, so I had a bunch of fun there and then, um, 
Jesse and I went on a bit of an elk hunt that didn't pan out quite so well to kick the season off. We had a fun hunt. It was just a challenging one. Um, and then headed north, way north, northern BC. And that's when things really started to get interesting. Um, the goal for the trip was uh, caribou, mountain caribou. Um, but it was a really slow start. And to kick things off, I ended up taking three wolves out of the area. Uh, we had seen a ton of wolves out there, so I was able to pull three wolves out of the area. Uh, got myself a decent stone sheep ram, <laughs> which was a bit of a bonus for the trip. I think we're going to chat about him a little bit tonight. And then to cap it all off at the tail end of the hunt, uh, when things were getting real tough and sticky, and we were starting to wonder if we were just burning days up there, um, kind of in a picture-perfect fairy tale finish to the hunt, we we got a beautiful uh, mountain caribou so you know certainly no complaining on my end the freezers are looking great right now and uh i mean we're sitting in october so there's still plenty of time left on the clock this fall so okay there's a lot to unpack there but uh <laughs> just a little um, bit let's rewind it here so let's talk elk um now there's a story there and what's how does that involve jesse and I knew Jesse being on here was a good thing. I didn't know why, but now I think we're going to find out. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Jesse, actually, um, we linked up. We've been chatting for a while, and he came out and did some filming for me on the uh, on the elk hunt. And that man is uh, a savage behind the camera, and uh, I have to give him a ton of credit because, as Jesse learned very quickly and very early in the hunt, I'm a bit of a boneheaded brute when it comes to hiking in the hills. And uh, <laughs> if I get excited or I get, you know, if the coffee gets in my veins early in the morning, it can make for a really long day. But, you know, um, we got out there two days before season kicked off, before archery kicked off, and we were seeing bulls everywhere. And as you know, archery season's any bull um, out in the Kootenays where we were, and we were seeing like six points left and right. And I mean... We're just sitting there going, Kate, don't get your hopes up. Don't get your hopes up. Things are going to happen. And then, poof, it's like somebody flicked the switch on the lights. Opener came, and it was a ghost town. Um, we hunted hard. We covered a lot of ground. Um, but, we, yeah, we did We did find some bulls. Just couldn't quite get in close enough to to close a deal. It was really weird behavior for that area. Like, the bulls were still, you know, bachelor grouped up and, and, and things like that, which is something that we didn't quite expect at all. Um, and then, uh, we did get a few opportunities that were pretty close. We got into 40 yards on one big dandy bull, like still hunting, like you would blacktail. And he was with a full herd and, um, was ready to come to full draw. He was just behind a branch, just wasn't confident in my ability to sneak a, a ethical shot through the trees at him. You know, you can always fling an arrow and kind of hope for the best, but waiting for him to clear this branch and then didn't notice that there was a cow and calf at eight yards between us and they busted us. And Jesse and I sat there on the side of the road crying like little girls for a bit. <laughs> uh, yeah, we did go up. We did climb up and have a good long nap up at the top of the mountain after that. I think we both needed that. Um, but yeah, I, I will say about the scouting though, Joe, like I've come to not like scouting now because your hopes get so high. Like we were like, Oh, this is gonna happen. It's like Jesse, you got a tag. Let's like I'm gonna tag out soon. We'll get you one, blah, 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 all this big talk. And then as soon as it's it's like they know. 
they know exactly the day and then they just go quiet and they disappear. We had our hopes were so high with scouting. There was so much, there was just like, oh my gosh, this is a Mecca. It's going to be amazing. And we were so excited. We're like, why haven't, why haven't we come out early on hunts before to scout yeah. two days early? Like, <laughs> this is the smartest thing we could have done. All we got to do is sit by that tree this morning and boom, we'll be tagged out by no time, like in no time. And then, yeah, I mean, it was a heartbreaker. And the, <laughs> the number one thing we said is just don't get our hopes up because, you know, things can change. But I honestly, I'd be lying if I said I didn't expect us to be turning down like nice bulls coming in because like it just wasn't looking good on camera or whatever. Just everything seemed like it was going to play out perfectly. And then, uh, yeah, we we came home with our tails between our legs. Well, I, th- I think the because it was. Well, we were 12 days, Tuesday, two days of scouting. The last day, though, <clears throat> we had at least some like repertoire with a couple bulls. So we, it was like, of course, the last day we were hunting and it like turns on and then we have to go the next day. <laughs> that last day to say was an interesting day. It was our hottest action in the hills, definitely for bulls. They were starting to bugle, they were fired up, they were running cows. But I probably had one of my dumbest moments <laughs> before <laughs> a hunt. So Jesse and I were out there hunting with one of, one of my good buddies, Ken Fraser. And uh, we jump in the truck and we start driving to the trailhead. And we're going to get there well before dark so we can hike in. And um, we had just kind of checked the weather on our local weather apps. And it didn't say anything. It said overcast. We're like, okay, fine. And then Jesse goes, well, hey, guys, I didn't bring my rain gear uh today because you know the weather looks good and then kent goes yeah i didn't bring any rain gear anyways and i'm I'm driving the truck and i got my rain gear in my backpack and i'm like well if you guys didn't bring your rain gear don't worry i'll leave my gear in the truck out of solidarity and i'm telling you like 15 minutes from the truck it was the clouds opened up and it was torrential downpour to the point where as we we mentioned, we had a lot of action. As we're standing there watching the bulls across from us and we're getting right in it, the water was pouring down my back and flo- overflowing my boots. Like it was pouring down my back, down my crack, down the backs of my legs, into my boots. Yeah, I was freaking out too because I, you know, I didn't have my rain cover on the camera or anything. So it just started to rain. I have... Um, I have always have every camera guy always has a garbage bag with them. So I grab a garbage bag, just throw it over the camera and we're like, this is of course the last day. So we're not like, Oh, let's go back. And you know, whatever bad way. It's just like, we're going and we're going up and we're just getting wet. Just, just getting soaked to the bone. And then we get up to where we, you know, kind of the, the upper range where the L car and Joe is just like, like completely focused on nothing but getting close to those elk and we see them and it's foggy and it's dark so there's like an opportunity to close the distance and i'm here like soaking wet both like all me me and kent are kind of like freaking out because where it's like it's at that like safety level of wet and cold but obviously we're starting we're not going to like turn around we've climbed up we're going and I just remember I, I told Joe, I'm like, I got to get my rain cover on or I'm not going to be able to shoot anything. He's like, pull your phone. Where's it? And I'm like filming with my phone and it's pouring rain. And and then I was just like, OK, I got and I just I said, I got to go put my rain cover on. I just went and found a tree. And of course, Joe didn't wait for me. He went straight up um, to where he could see the elk. And I'm just like 
fighting pine needles and like throwing my jacket off and I'm freezing cold. I'm trying to put a rain cover on when it's pouring. It's just like, it's insane. So I take the garbage bag off my rain cover. You know, it's, it's more fitted to the camera so I can zoom. I can hit all my buttons. My hands go inside this rain cover. It's like what I need to, to film an episode in the pouring rain. And so I do this like under a tree branch where it's just like, any little thing, like any little drop that gets inside on the buttons can can impact how it goes. If you get moisture in the inside of the rain cover, then it, the fog, it's going to fog up. You're going to have issues. So it's just like super stress. I kind of just said, F it. I need to go under this tree and just do this. I did it. And then as I'm walking up closer to where I know Kent and, and Joe are, I can hear the mics coming in. The mics coming in my earpieces. They go, oh, 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 there he is. Okay. Come on, Jesse, let's go. I'm like, just like hustling with the camera. And then I finally get up to him and we get to a spot where we can see. But then we're behind trees along this road and we get to where those trees basically provide us cover the closest we can get to the elk. If we go out past these trees, then we're going to be, you know, they're going to see us and they're going to, you know, know that we're there. So we can't go any further. We have to sit in the rain. All three of us are soaked to the bone like to the like hypothermic bone and we can't move. So I'm like rocking back and forth with my, with my feet just to try to like get some movement. Kent's just like, screw you guys. He's walking like back down the road, up and down behind the trees to try to stay warm. And we're just like, I can't remember how long did we stand there for Joe? At least an hour. I think it was close to an hour and a half hour, 45 of just. So we were probably, I think we were between 500 and 400 yards across a draw from them mm-hmm. but they were on this open slide area where um and where we were on this road we were protected in that one spot but as soon as we moved too much either direction we were going to be completely busted so we had to wait until a bit of fog cover came up before we could move and try and get in on them but uh that was um that was a good test for you jesse <laughs> and you passed so I know I'm stubborn enough to ride it out and you didn't pack up and go home. So you get a feather in your cap for that one. As I mentioned, <laughs> well, I'm, I'm just a little bullheaded um, as you alluded to just, you know, yeah. very, very subtly there. <laughs> well, I mean, those situations, mm-hmm. if you're moving and your heart rate's going and you're generating heat, you can get through typically um, or you can survive it, but that like standing there and not being able to move or just like sitting in the cold wet, that was like a mental battle for sure. But we got through it. Um, and that's when we did, you know, kind of close some distance cause fog moved in. Kent was, was off doing cow calls and I can't remember. I think he, I think he was just cow calling and, um, we did get a bull come in real close. Rick, it, it, he like came to the edge, get it? The edge. I, I, and uh and he came to the edge of the brush but he didn't come through he didn't show himself and then everything went quiet and then we went to the top of the mountain and kent was like okay it's fire time and then uh we made a fire and then the sun came out and we got all dry and happy and and it was good but yeah it was uh, that's one i'll remember for a long time and that was your first if i remember correctly so i promised you when we headed up there, I was like, man, we're going to get into screaming matches. I've never been on an archery elk hunt before and not gotten like proper screaming matches where you're going back and forth, normally a few with some immature bulls and then, you know, whatever, having some fun. So I was just like, man, you're going to, you're going to love this. And I, I 
failed on that promise for the first ninety <laughs> percent of the trip. That was the first day where we had some proper bugles going off, like right next to us, and it didn't happen for us. We didn't connect, but I remember turning around and looking at you, and it was just like you were a kid in a candy shop, and I just it was kind of fun being a part of that, seeing your reaction to it because there's nothing there's nothing that compares to that getting a pissed off bull screaming in your face. I mean, other, yeah. other than seeing them actually come out in the open, that's probably the best part. <laughs> <laughs> Without getting to that part of the, the hunt. Um, yeah, I know it was an absolute blast, but I'm actually uh, packed up. I'm leaving. I'm heading back out there tomorrow to go try. And yeah, I know. I wish I could come with you, but nah. can't make that one. We'll so from a show perspective, something like that, do you make a show out of it or you don't get a kill shot or you, or you don't even get a, you don't harvest something. Is it a, is it a throwaway? Is it kind of like, oh, okay, well be real. We need to run something. You'd run it if you had to, but as a general rule, you wouldn't run it. How does it work from a production perspective? Uh, from a, from a production perspective, we try not to, obviously you don't want to have a, a no kill episode. Um, but for my stuff, like I'll run up to, you know, one to two no kill episodes a year um from my end as long as there's something we can talk about that's educational or it's still a strong episode there's strong content in this hunt although it didn't work out even if say i'm going back out to finish the episode uh tomorrow hopefully um for a week but even if i don't connect i think there's enough from the hunt that's educational people can learn from it and i think it's a real angle you know we don't always connect it's even though there's a camera with us and we're a tv show we're not superheroes. Like I'm just some small town kid that's out there hunting like anybody else. Right. So, um, but I mean, let's be real. There's, there's kind of contractual obligations, expectations from our partners and expectations from our viewers. I, we wouldn't run a full episode, like a full season of no kills. Um, so we will run a few, but we can't do too many. No. Okay. So now let's say you were successful on that hunt and Jesse screwed the pooch and he didn't make it there for the kill shot. Um, how many no kill shot episodes can you run? Like, can you, obviously if you kill an animal, you're probably going to do something with it, but if you didn't get the kill shot on camera, um, what is that? What are the consequences of something like that? Yeah. For a full season, like if there's no, absolutely no kill on a hunt, I would say for the entire show. So between Steve and I on the show, we'd probably do a maximum of three no kill episodes for the season. And they would have to be like that third one would have to be a rocker, like a real good episode. Otherwise, it's probably just kind of one one each that we would do a no kill episode. Um, and it's not it's not that we're trying to lie and say, oh, we kill in every hunt. It's just the expectation of our viewers, the expectation from our partners. We have that pressure to kind of have X number of successful hunts in the field a year. I, I, but how? <clears throat> sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to clarify. I think the, the question was more if I miss the kill shot, but you still oh, kill an animal. Okay. Um, does that still suffice? Is that right, Kyle? Yeah, I guess how important is it to get the kill? Like, you're obviously going to run the episode if you don't get the kill shot, right? But it'd be really bad if you never had any kill shots, I guess. Eh? Yeah, um, we typically uh, really try to aim to make sure the animal's in frame for that portion of it. Um, I, I went to Argentina last year and i had a stag in my crosshairs and i did not pull the trigger because my cameraman could not confirm that he had it in frame um because he was to the right of me and there was a tree in front of him he had no idea what i was talking about meanwhile I have this gorgeous royals six by six stag at 40 yards in front of me head down feeding that we had just happened to come across so um 
it, it seems to have quite a bit of weight. Uh, to be perfectly honest, I think nowadays with the way that the story is told, as long as we can get certain emotions and things like that in the show, I don't think the kill shot is as important as it used to be. It seems like viewers aren't as uh, trapped on that. It's a lot more about the whole story and the experience, but we still do our best to capture every moment, highs and lows. Um, <clears throat> but at the same time, even if the cameraman can't get up there, um, as you'll hear later on on this call, I've gotten a little handy with self-filming as well. So <laughs> um, that's kind of that's kind of part of it. it. It adds a bit more on the hunt, but uh, I can be quick on the draw with some of these new Fandango cameras and apps and attachments to get stuff on spotting scopes and film. Right on. Okay, so I'm going to throw a scenario at you. So you're on a mule deer hunt and you know that there's an abundance of mule deer. You're going to kill a mule deer. It's a given, right? So you're, you Never know, you're going to kill. Never say that. <laughs> but Especially it's, when filming. It's a slam dunk. You're going to kill a 140 inch mule deer for <laughs> sure if you want to. But mm -hmm. there's a 180 inch mule deer there. So you're out, you're on a 180 inch mule deer and you lose the cameraman. He's not in position. You can't get, get the kill shot. Are you going to sacrifice that big deer? And for a kill shot on a 140 inch mule deer later, or are you going to kill a 180 inch, 180 inch mule deer and miss the kill shot? So what's, and, and of course, nothing's ever guaranteed, right? So, you know, it, but it's just almost a slam dunk. You're basically, you know, guaranteed you'd kill a 140 and you probably are going to guarantee to get it on camera as well. So what do you do in that scenario? I guess the question I have for you is you see this killer mule deer and you know, you're going to be able to get one. And but the cameraman's not there for that 180 inch. Do you kill it or not? I'm gonna piss off some sponsors at that point. <laughs> and, uh, under it all, under it all, I am, I am a, a guy that loves to hunt and loves the career I'm in right now because it gives me the opportunity to go on these hunts and these experiences. But let's not kid ourselves. Like I'm a hunter through and through, and I'm I'm there to get the job done. So if I see a, a animal of a lifetime, absolutely. Um, I did mention earlier. I passed on a stag um, in Argentina. It was a good stag. It wasn't a phenomenal. It was a nice stag. I did not pull the trigger. I thought we had more time. If I had thought that the animal was spooked and going to take off, I probably still would have shot in that moment. Um, but yeah, first and foremost, I'm a hunter. I just happen to have a camera guy with me a lot of the time. Okay, so the, you know that, that's great. I'm glad to hear that. And you know, for me, I always find it interesting talking to you know hunting celebrities. I guess. Uh, you know, for lack of a better term. And I always try and understand the logic um, in that scenario. Like for me, it's just about the hunt because I couldn't film myself in under any scenario and I've tried and it's hopeless. Right. So I don't even, I don't even try. So with that in mind, um, you, you know, I always find with you personally, Joe, do you find that um, it changes the way, well, it obviously changes the way you hunt. Does it change the level of enjoyment? Does it make it more enjoyable trying to film it? Because it's that much more difficult. It's, you know, it, it's it's hard to, and, you know, people switch weapons. They go from rifle to, you know, maybe a muzzleloader or to a bow or something to make it that much more challenging. Is it the same with camera work and having a show? It's, uh, I'll say I'm five years in now and I'm enjoying it a lot more than I did at the beginning. Um I would be lying to you if I said it's as enjoyable as when I get to go on a solo hunt for myself. Um, it's not. There's a lot more going through my mind with regards to um, filming opportunities, making sure if I'm going in on an animal now, all of a sudden I have to make sure that we're getting in 
to a spot where I can have two or three people with me versus just one person closing in on an animal. One of the things I really love about hunting is getting out and fully disconnecting. Um, it's like one of those places that you can kind of just, it's like you completely disconnect to reconnect when you're out hunting. Like you start noticing things you don't see uh, when you're hunting on your own and you kind of get in this rhythm with nature. It sounds cheesy, but you get in this rhythm with nature when you're out there and you feel like you're really connected. I will say that when I'm hunting and filming, it's sometimes difficult to get fully in that kind of Zen state or that, that flow. Um, because you are thinking of like, I'm in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, what's happening in this moment? How can I make sure the viewers at home, like I can share this experience with people so they can feel like they were, they were here. What should I be describing to them about the process that's happening? Um, so I don't get to just go out there, shut up and focus on my hunt and go through the process. I have to go through the process. I have to describe it on camera i have to break it down make sure we're stopping talking the camera enough doing all of that uh, so it definitely does weigh on you um and to be perfectly honest like it's like i said i'm enjoying it a lot more now it, it is a big burden it's a lot of pressure as well when you go out there because i mentioned like i'm expected to film six a minimum like six hunts successful hunts a year that's a lot and i still have a full-time job i still have a wife and kid at home um, so it's, it's a lot of pressure and it, it stresses you out. But I mean, early on, I'd come home from a hunt. My wife would see me and be like, you're stressed. I'd come home from a hunt that I was just on with cameraman and a great hunt. And my wife would be like, you're too stressed. You need to go hunting. And she would send me <laughs> off on my own for a few days. So I could, I could get my true, like peaceful hunt in where I get to fully disconnect and, and be out there. So, um, it, it changes the experience in a big way, but I've come to really enjoy it and really love it. And being with certain, that sounds really weird, but what I'm about to say, but being with certain cameramen or being in the field with certain cameramen um, can really change how much pressure goes along with that as well. So like a skilled cameraman can really take a lot of pressure off of you rather than me always having to look at them and say, Hey, film me. Let's do a check-in. Like Jesse was great. He was probing me a lot. Like, Hey Joe, what's happening right now? Sometimes too much. Uh, <laughs> There's one time, shut where, up a few times. There's one time funny. where I cussed him out, and I was like, "We'll talk about this in a second. Uh, I was like, "But this is our job. You're supposed to talk to me right now." <laughs> okay, yeah. cool, 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 cool. It's a fine line, uh, but yeah, no, it, it it changes the experience quite a bit. So you talked about five years ago, kind of the stress of it coming home from the hunt. Do you find now it's got to the point where I, I wouldn't call it easy, but it's it's a hell of a lot easier. Kind of, it's like it's kind of almost second nature now for you, or not really? It's still a lot of work. Uh, if I'm being fully honest, it's probably half and half. The hunt itself, the process, the preparation, going out there, that side of it all doesn't bother me as much. Um, understanding when I should be checking in, um, and being able to—it sounds weird—but being able to be more authentic on camera comes more naturally now early on you kind of have this pressure in your mind of what you think you're supposed to be saying whereas now I can be much more organic with it um, but I will say there's a pressure with being five years in the industry you can't make some of those rookie mistakes you made early on so each year you're in the industry you're kind of whether I'm just doing it to myself or whether it's it actually is happening it feels like you hold yourself to a higher standard year after year. I would say too, with the pressure and kudos to you, Joe, about, you know, the majority of the hunts that you do are all self-guided or you have friends that give you 
Intel somewhere and you have to kind of go and figure it out. Not all of them are showing up and there's a guide that says, okay, we're going over here. Okay. That's not working. Let's go over there. You know, the, the lack of guided hunts that you do and still able to accomplish what you do is commendable. It's uh, it's an extra layer of, of hard work that um, I don't think other hunting celebrities as we're calling them, um, you know, have, um, but just, just a kudos to you for, for that extra layer of hard work. Cause I've seen it firsthand and it's a, uh, it's a grind. It's not just, you don't just have to show up and hike up the mountain. It's, there's a lot more complex issues at play that uh, you have to deal with. Well, thank you, Jesse. I certainly appreciate that. And the, I will say the term uh, hunting celebrity makes me feel a little uncomfortable, but uh, <laughs> um, I will say like you, you alluded to it. I do have a lot of good friends. Um, I've been hunting for a while. So it's, yes, a lot of my hunts aren't guided. I, I'd be lying if I said I didn't enjoy unguided hunts more personally, I would do all that way if I had more time in my schedule. Um, but at the same time, it is nice going on, you know, a guided horseback hunt from time to time. That's <laughs> always nice. But, uh, but yeah, I am fortunate. I get friends. I've, I've hunted with a lot of friends and, you know, we'll kick around ideas and I can, I can call up some pretty good buddies and go over maps and say, Hey, what do you guys think about this for this season? This is what I'm trying to accomplish. Um, and I have a pretty good group of guys behind me that we can sit down and come up with some cool ideas. So, um, I certainly am not doing it hundred percent on my own and I would never claim to do that. So, uh, but yeah, no, it's, it's a lot of fun out there and yeah, you saw it. There's, it's not without stressful moments. <laughs> That's true. Okay, I want to hear about your sheep story. Oh my! Oh, sheep oh, is isn't there wolves in there in between, or is it? Do you go straight to? Well, that's straight to. That's sheep? No. Yeah, I guess I can kind of give a, a bit of an intro to it. So the goal uh, for me this year was I've been I've been wanting to go on a caribou hunt for. It's been a dream of mine for a long time, but I probably started putting some weight behind it three years ago, and I was actually looking at doing a guided hunt for caribou. Had it booked, and then the outfitter. Um, it was some stuff to do with the caribou numbers in the area. They were losing their quota. They could hold on to the one tag for me to come up and do the hunt, but then it would impact some of the stuff going on with the wolves in the area. So ultimately I said, let's let the caribou tag go and we'll do a different hunt. But I've been wanting to do it for a while. Finally put it all together for this year, got up there and, uh, there was no caribou. <laughs> to be seen at all we were hiking around like madmen um but there was wolves like rats we were seeing wolf sign everywhere um across this one entire migratory like corridor this base in this valley i on multiple days would see like bits and pieces of it we ended up figuring out what they were doing is there was a pack of wolves and they would set up on these high points across this entire they kind of created this net in a line across this entire corridor and they would set up and then if something walked through they would break off and start flanking whatever came through there um so once we kind of got an idea of what was happening we decided to uh try our hand and, and reduce the numbers there a little bit um and yeah as we mentioned earlier i was able to pull three wolves out of the area one day we actually got um, we got stalked by two of the wolves they broke off from their formation and tried to flank us. Um, I wasn't able to get a shot at them that day because of the weather, but 
one day I shot one. It was a bit of a long poke. I don't know if I should mention how far of a shot it was because <laughs> some people might call it, um, you know, unethical, but I've done some pretty long range shooting courses and um, it was a wolf in a stationary position. And okay. I'll say it. I shot the wolf at 933 yards, which is a long poke for a wolf. That's a long <laughs> shot. He but, must've been pretty small. It was, yeah, I mean, but I was really anchored and I was set up well and, and conditions were were good enough that I felt confident in the shot and I took the shot and we, we got the one wolf down. Um, and I'll be honest, it was later that day that I got my stone sheet. That was in the morning. I was heading up to get my ram and I, I had spotted um, the ram the day before, way in the distance. Um, that night, my cameraman got injured and that was not me not not jesse um so then we went back to camp and we were wondering do we pack up do we head out or what do we do and i just said you know what you stay at camp rest up i've got to get back in the hills there was some animals i need to get a closer look at <laughs> so i'm gonna bring some kind of self-filming gear and i'm gonna hike up early in the morning and, and just see what i can make happen but knowing full well i'm on my own um it's not going to be an easy situation regardless of what happens so i'm hiking up and covering ground as fast as I can because I have somewhere I want to be. And all of a sudden in the distance, I start hearing these wolves howling and I could hear them setting up again in their positions. And I was like, oh, I don't want to break off. I've, I know where I want to get to to start the day. And then um, I started howling back because they just wouldn't stop. And I was able to pull this one. Uh, it looked like a blonde female. She pulled up onto this one ridge and bed down on a ridge on an open rock face and sat there and I have footage of her for probably two and a half, three minutes, just howling back and forth with me. And I was trying to howl to pull it in closer. It just wouldn't close the distance anymore. So I set up, take the shot. Uh, she actually ran off into the timber. I followed tons of blood, rewatched the footage, like smashed the wolf, but ran off into thick timber in a section where I couldn't, ended up not fully recovering the wolf, full disclosure. Um, but we watched the footage followed the blood trail, followed everything, and quite confident the wolf is deceased. Um, and then, yeah, I was like, okay, well, I've spent enough time here. I marked the area where the wolf was, and then I started hiking straight up. And, I mean, full tilt, hair straight back. Jesse, you've been with me when I'm motivated to cover ground, mm -hmm. and I can cover quite a bit of ground. And, and just uh, for context, for every step that Joe takes, I have to take three just to keep up because he's a big man. <laughs> yes, I got a good long stride and uh, I was putting it to use that day. And um, yeah, so I, I kind of I had seen where the it, there was a group of using lambs, um, a nice group of using lambs that had four rams with them that I'd seen from a distance. And uh I kind of had an idea of what direction they were going to be heading. It's kind of a migratory path where we were. It's not really somewhere they spend a ton of time. So they would have just been moving through. So I kind of had an idea where I wanted to get to, to try and cut them off to see if I could get a good look at them. So I basically sprint at, you know, in hiking gear with your backpack on way up to where I wanted to get to. And as I crest this, this one area, I spotted just the tops, the crowns of their, the ram's uh, horns on the far side of this one face. And I, uh, yeah, I managed to close into just over two kilometers of them. And then I started running out of cover. So I sat there and watched them for a little bit just to see what they were doing. They, I couldn't see the full bodies or their heads yet. 
and luckily they fed up and over towards me to where I could get a better look at them. I definitely at that point knew that the one ram was one I, I wanted to get a closer look at. I'll say that much at this point. Um, and then the using lambs came and then I was right next to another big basin and they kind of started going from left to right and looking like they were going to go over to the the bluffs over the right and disappear over that into the, the uh, areas beyond there. So I waited until they were more over to the right side. And then I kind of backed out a little bit, got my gear together and I ducked down all the way through the draw back up the other side, start climbing up the other side out of sight, get to a point where I can peek over comfortably and look to see where they are. When I peek over, they had gone back to the left side. So I'm like, okay, (laughs) grab my gear, go all the way back down, all the way back into the rocks on the left side, get there. And then I'm watching them and they had hung up just on the left edge now at this point. I'm like, okay, maybe they'll come up towards me. Nope. They, for some reason, they hadn't spotted me at this point because they're still fighting. I'm watching them. They're fighting, they're scrapping, they're feeding. And then uh, all of a sudden they start jogging at this point off to the right. And I'm like, man, did the wind switch? Did the wind's like, I'm still just under two kilometers from these guys. Like it doesn't make sense to why they'd be running from me, but they start jogging to the right again. So I'm like, man, I was just over there. <laughs> I really don't want to go back. But as you guys know, if there's a sheep over there, you're going. So I grab my gear again, and I'm running low on water at this point. Drop all the way down through the draw, back up the other side. At this point, like they've been jogging, so I'm kind of like a climber's sprint going all the way up to the top of this ridge. And I finally get up to the top of the ridge, and uh, I'm huffing and puffing, and it's, yeah, my chest is heaving. And I'm sitting there going, okay, what do I got to do? I got to pull out some cameras so I'm ready to film. So I've got this little Insta360 thing that's on an extended arm. I tuck that in my backpack and turn it on. I get my phone out. I've got a little all-in adapter so it can quickly go on my spotting scope. I pull my spotting scope. I'll get it on the tripod. I do a little check-in interview. I'm like, hey, guys, this is what's going on, yada, yada. Get my gun on the tripod or on my bipod so I can just like try and in my mind go, okay, what am I forgetting? What am I not forgetting? And at this point, I still don't know if the Rams have gone out of the area or if they're still there. But the way things were going, um, if they were in the area, I was going to be heading out towards the end of this finger. And they, my wind would be almost quartered from right to left at a 45, somewhat in their direction. So not ideal. So if I did see them, it was going to be a quick shot, likely. Um, so I'm like, okay, I have to be really careful. They could be feeding up towards me. Who knows what's going to happen here? And when I say quick shot, I mean, I'm going to have to get down, ID, try and film, do all of this stuff. So it's a little bit of pressure. So I'm starting to crawl over the, the ridges. And then finally, I get to this one last ridge. And there's no rocks on this one, no cover. And it's just kind of a little bit of a rolling grass hill. And I'm crawling up to the edge, spotter in one hand with my phone on it and rifle in the other. And I look over and three of my rams are feeding around this one rock at 436 yards and behind the rock all i can see is a lamb tip and the top kind of glimpse of the top of his horn sitting there and this bugger had just bed down for the afternoon behind this rock (laughs) and as i'm seeing them i realize there's no rocks around me so i'm skylined a little bit the clouds go away blue sky comes out and i have to just hit the dirt and lie down and i'm like i can't move anymore because there's three rams that are in plain sight and then a group of ewes and lambs feed up and over towards me as well so they're there and i'm like okay my wind's got to be getting close to them 
stressful moment. Um, but I mean, without dragging the story on too, too long, the Ram eventually, the youngest Ram of the group tries to bed down close to the big guy. I had my phone adapter on my spotter and I'm trying to watch everything through there. And the big Ram gets up, runs a little Ram off. I was able to film it, freeze frame and zoom in and confirm he's a minimum of eight years old and well past the nose on both sides. Nice, big, heavy Ram, beautiful animal. Um, so in that moment, I knew that I was going to harvest him when he, when he stood up. And uh, I think it was three and a half or four hours later, I was cramping, um, lying in a bit of a, <laughs> Jesse might get a kick of this, but it was a bit of a, like a little bit of a divot where I was lying and I couldn't really move. So I had to, I had to relieve myself at one point and I kind of rolled over on my side and I, I shimmied over to the one side and I had to piss. So I pissed and then I went back to where I was and I felt it come back underneath me, which was not the best <laughs> feeling. So I'm lying there in my own piss. I'm cramping all over and I'm just waiting. Oh, and my phone starts dying and I'm filming through my spotting scope. My phone starts dying. Now, fortunately, just before, you know, everything fell apart, my ram does stand up, starts feeding towards me, stops broadside at probably 415 yards. And uh, as you guys will see when the episode comes out, I mean, it was just picture perfect. Picture perfect. Um, I was able to get a perfect shot on him, dropped him in his tracks. Like there was no doubt from the second, the first impact hit, like he was done on the spot, beautiful ram down. And uh, yeah, I was able to, when I walked up on him, he only got bigger. Just one of those rams that uh, I feel very, very fortunate to have had the opportunity to harvest. Um, And yeah, I mean, the whole time it was a pretty cool experience. And as you guys know, last year I did take a younger ram. I think we're going to talk about that here a little bit likely. But with this Ram, after my experience last year, I was fully prepared. If, even though I knew he was well past the nose, big, heavy Ram. Um, if he was an eight plus, I was going to let him walk. So I was very, very happy to see he had an eight enemy alive when he did. <clears throat> that, that Ram is absolutely perfect. He's dark, dark cape, big old Roma nose. He's just gorgeous, eh? That's one thing I, I noticed, too, that was just so beautiful about him is his coat. Like he just, he's more pepper than salt. Um, that's for sure. And just like almost, almost like chocolate. Yeah. He was like a dark chocolate, a beautiful kind of white face with some like little bit of like solid gray marbling through it. But then he also had like really golden horns. Like they were almost like mm-hmm. a doll ram and uh, Kyle, you know what doll ram horns look like. So they're beautiful. Um, but, uh, and just a nice, healthy, fat animal. Um, we cooked them up. We cooked a lot of them up in camp. Took pictures of it all and everything, and uh, everybody loved it. But just well marbled, healthy ram. He was with a good group of rams. And, and one thing that really made me feel good about it as well is right next to him, that hanging out was a group of ewes and lambs, and uh, but like first, second year ewes in there, a whole bunch of them. So you feel good in a situation like that, taking an animal out of there. They're definitely healthy in the area. Um, and uh, yeah, that's a trophy I won't soon forget. So what's what's the best part of it? Killing the sheep, self-filming, like it, all of it's a dream, right? Like <clears> you, you add all that together. It's amazing. But um, like, what, what do you think about when you, I guess you're just thinking about the ram. You're not really thinking about the self-filming, but it just must be surreal, uh, really. Yeah, you know what, to be perfectly honest, um, the 
probably the coolest thing about this hunt. I mean, obviously harvesting a ram of that caliber is going to be amazing no matter what, but being able to do it on a true solo hunt for the day where I'm self-filming, that's something I don't get to do as much as I used to. Um, especially on these bigger hunts, when I'm doing a bigger hunt, there's almost always people with me. So to be able to have that experience on my own and sit there and really enjoy it. Um, my camera died shortly after getting to the Ram. So all I was able to do that day was kind of gut them, break them down or get them set up. And then I couldn't do the full pack out and everything that day. Um, but as you guys know, or as I've talked about quite a few times, my father passed away a while ago. And um, so when I'm in the bush, that's kind of like my moment where I get to have time with him. So like after the Ram was down, I kind of sat and had my moment with the Ram and then it was, it might sound cheesy, but I kind of, I sat down and I had a really good talk with my dad. So that was pretty cool too. And uh, but yeah, it's just one of those moments where you kind of, everything else just melted away. I sat there for, I thought it was 15 minutes and I looked at my watch and it had been two hours. Wow. <laughs> I was just sitting there next to him and just in, I was in complete awe of the animal, of the experience of the area, everything. Hmm. that's amazing man um so let's dive into it a little bit um you this is your second ram and last year you've harvested a gorgeous ram totally legal but a little on the young side and um yeah. <clears throat> got a little bit of flack on it um uh, you know and, and you know i felt unnecessarily we know we know that the narrative around it right um Talk about that journey for you and what it was like, Joe, to sort of, and, and, you know, you're, you're, I guess, quote, an easy target because you are an influencer celebrity, you know, pick, pick a name, pick a, pick a title, but, um, you know, people want to, want to take shots at you at the best of times, um, yeah. let alone when you do something that, you know, maybe people don't necessarily approve of. So chat a little bit about that for us, if you don't mind. Yeah. Um, it was, uh, yeah, last year's hunt, you know, that was my first Ram. Um, it's something I'd been on other hunts. I passed on rams that were likely legal because I wanted to make sure I harvested a, a good ram. And uh, I made a mistake in the field. Um, well, I made sure he was a legal ram, but I didn't age him <clears throat> before I pulled the trigger. Um, I'm not here to, like, I won't make excuses. Uh, I've never done an a, a official apology. I feel like when you apologize, sometimes it's because you're looking for forgiveness. I'm I made a mistake. That's something for me to own. And it's something for me to grow from. That's kind of how I've always approached everything I do. So I've never, you know, um, done any of that other side of stuff, but, uh, the way the hunt went down last year, um, I was up, it wasn't a solo hunt. I had a cameraman with me who had done some whitetail hunts and black bear hunts, but again, unguided stone sheep hunt. I think we were day eight on the hunt and we had been watching a lot of Rams or seeing Rams every ram i had seen on the hunt was way back like at probably the best just over three quarter and like seven potentially eight-year-old rams that were still way back and i'd just been seeing a lot of short rams that were still quite old on the hunt and i got in this mindset that um all of the rams in the area were going to have really short annuli and if I saw a legal ram based on full curl, it was definitely going to be an old ram. It was just an assumption I made based on what I'd seen on the hunt. On the day I shot my ram, we spotted two different groups of rams in the morning, right by our tent. <clears throat> While I was getting water, there was a younger group and then a group that had four, three or four rams, two that were like, looked like big, heavy, mature rams. So looped around, got above them. I was 
only at 176 yards above them. So I wasn't far from them. And I came across five rams that were bedded. <clears throat> I was working on aging one of them through the spotter. And one of them had his head down. He was sleeping. He had his head down. And I was like, hey, I'll, I'll check that one out later. But I'm going to try and age this one that's got his head up right now. And while I was working on aging him, the ram I ended up shooting lifted his head. And I put the spotter on him right away. And both me and the camera guy were like, holy smokes, that guy's way past the nose. Um, and in that split moment, I mean, looking back at it, I had all the time in the world. They didn't know we were there. Wind was in our favor. I was above him. I could have put the spotter on him and aged him. I had been talking all year about the importance of aging rams. And I looked and I thought this guy's about two inches plus past the bridge of his nose. And I pulled my spotter off the tripod, threw my gun on the tripod and I shot him. And that's what I did. Um, and as soon as I walked up on him, I mean, when I pulled the trigger, Ram went down again, nice shot. Ram went down, put him down in his bed. He stood up, went right back down. Um, so I felt good about everything. And then I walked up on him and I realized he was a much tighter curl than I had thought because we were above, he was wide and everything. And I thought he was, a, a, you know, a deeper curled ram. And I went, oh, oh that's not a good sign um, right out of the gates. And then as soon as I put hands on him and I counted the annual, his growth was like almost double from some of the other rams we've been seeing in the area. So like he was tight curled, but way past the bridge of the nose. And uh, yeah, he was six. Or I guess six and a half, as people say, if you're trying to stretch it, six and a half. But a lot of people just go by the round number. So he was a six-year-old ram. And uh, that's that's what it, it was still a fully legal ram. Um, I took him in for his CI and like way past the bridge of his nose when we got stopped by the CO. Uh, the CO we saw actually said they, oddly enough, it didn't make me feel any better, but they said they wished more people shot based on full curl because then you know it's a legal ram. They don't have to confiscate it. But uh, yeah, no, it was a, a very young ram, not one that I would shoot again if I had the opportunity, but I did shoot it. That was the start of my sheep hunting career. That's not something that'll ever go away, but I'll tell you from this moment forward, um, like even when I saw my big ram and I closed in on the one I shot this year, I knew he was way bigger, way heavier than the first ram I shot. And I knew without an inkling of a doubt like I watched him for, I don't know how long. Um, and there was no chance in hell I was going to shoot him until I knew he was over eight. So it's, it's one of those moments you kind of, you take it for what it is. Um, and you just grow from it. And that's, that's, that's kind of what I'm going to do with it. But well, awesome, Joe, for, you know, this message that, you know, you're willing to share with us and, um, like first and foremost, and, and for those listeners that maybe don't quite understand the system in British Columbia, um, around thin horns, there's a rule that uh, you can, it's to be illegal, you need to be one of two things. It needs to be mature, which has been eight years of age or older, is one of the criteria. And the other one is the uh, the horn must be past the um, point of the nose when uh, viewed perpendicularly. Now, don't use that as the official terminology. Look it up in the regulations. <laughs> say, Kyle, <laughs> Kyle said on talk is sheep. Um, I will take no accountability for that, but that's the gist of it. And so, as Joe said, it was a hundred percent perfectly legal ram. And in fact, if you talk to anyone from the ministry, they're going to tell you that's the kind of ram they want you to shoot, as opposed to maybe an eight or nine year old ram that's sub of the nose. And you're just it's you know because what's happening is people are um, inaccurately aging them, thinking that they're eight years old, and unfortunately they're six or seven, 
and they're not past the bridge of the nose. Hence, they're illegal and they're confiscated. So um, it's a problem we've had here in British Columbia. It's a bit of a, I guess, a challenging, well, it's a very challenging to do, but it's also controversial too, right? Then certain jurisdictions have other rules that they go by, but that's the rules in British Columbia. Um, so good on you, Joe, for, for showing, you know, having this discussion and it's kind of an awareness thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and maybe that's, it's worth discussing a little bit about why it's so important to, to shoot an older Ram. Um, you guys want to jump into that a little bit? Um, I know a lot of our listeners know about that, but, uh, you know, there, there's a, a reason that older Rams are being encouraged to harvest and the reason they don't want you shooting younger Rams. So, um, Jesse, why don't you tell us the biology on that? Cause you're the horn aging guy. Um, providing that educational aspect. Well, I mean, I'm not the expert by any means. I, I'm I'm learning a lot as I as you know we're working on you know uh, a sheep education course at the society, and I'm not the expert, but I am good at putting the right people in the right place at the right time. Um, as to what I do a lot in my career, um, but yeah, there's 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 a lot more things to to consider um, with those killing those older sheep, um, you know, herd dynamics, like, like you said, Joe, in your story there, you know, a lot of people, um, get, um, the blinders on and just focus on, is it a legal Ram? Yes or no. They don't necessarily have that, you know, wide angle view where they can see the herd and the herd dynamics. Is it a healthy herd? You know, is, is he a, a solo Ram? Is it a band of Rams? Um, you know, there's a big difference between if you see, if there's three hunters out there, they see three legal Rams and take all of them. That's perfectly legal. But, you know, what's the impact of that herd going to be when you remove those three rams from there? So in the scenario that of your ram this year of, you know, I think it was with four other rams or three other rams. It was with, with a group of rams. Three. And, yeah. And then there was, you know, a big I, I saw the footage of of the, the herd, you know, probably six or seven ewes with a bunch of land. Like it's a good, healthy herd. So pulling one ram out of there, that's probably the most mature ram. Um, you know, now you're giving, um, a chance of the younger Rams to, to now breed. He's probably by that age, by eight, nine, he's, you know, not only, um, been a breeding Ram, but he's also probably had time to mentor those younger Rams and they kind of know what they're doing a little bit. You know, that's the other thing is that those older Rams will mentor, you know, if you kill, um, if, if they don't have a chance to to kind of teach the young guns what to do, they can, you know, their chances of breeding goes down as well. So anyways, that guy's old enough that he's probably had his chance. He's mentored some guys on, on how to go through the rut and bullied them around a bit and how to treat the ladies. Um, so they know what to do. So, you know, now you're kind of giving the, the um, genetics um, and a chance to move on and, and to carry forward. So, but that to say that it's, it's just, it's complex and there's dynamics to take into um, to take into judgment or to take in as they, as they um, don't just rely on the, you know, is that a legal Ram and and what that one Ram is going to be or the legalities of it. So that's one thing that we're trying to do with this new course that we're working on is be able to give a a broad perspective view, excuse me, on, sheep and health and dynamics because they are not only a beautiful and iconic species but they're also sensitive and they're also very complex so think there's there's more to consider and more or around them that needs to to take into or or bring into context um with your decision making as as a hunter 
Um, and that's what we're trying to do with this new course. I don't know how this became a plug for the new course, but <laughs> we're working on it and it's coming out um, uh, soon. So um, it will give a more broad perspective rather than just how to count annuli and what full curl means, that kind of stuff. Yeah. And one, one big thing, again, just to go back to what happened to me the previous year that I've found and, you know, um, rams in the same area, same, I mean, you would assume they have the same feed. They're likely going to have the same growth year to year, different things like that. So I kind of got into this. That was my, my, my uh, assumption, like that I made the previous year was that all these other rams I had seen in the same area would have had the same type of growth. So mm-hmm. this ram's part of that group. It's going to be, but it's just like, like anybody, it's like people, you know, like there's different genetics, different, my ram that I took this year, his body was a full, probably third or more bigger than any of the rams he was with. Um, but his annual, like his growth, he had far better growth than these other rams had that he was with. Like he was obviously eating well or just had genetics or who knows what it was. Um, but the previous year, you know, like it just, that's the way it happened. So I, I've learned that you can't just make that assumption that, you know, okay, if the last ram you saw had really tight annuli and, you know, he was seven, but way back, if it kind of looks similar, but he's past the nose, oh, he must be, you know, nine, 10 plus. Mm-hmm. It could be a young ram that's just had some really good years or just happens to have some really strong genetics in there. Well, Joe, I, do, I want to commend you on on your, I guess, your honest discussion about this and and using this bit a bit of a learning opportunity for sheep hunters. And, um, you know, I guess just the other thing to be clear is, you know, you didn't do anything wrong, illegal, um, you know, but this discussion about thinking about shooting an older ram is is a good discussion to have. Um, and you did your due diligence. You looked, he was a hundred percent legal. There was no question about that. You knew that going in, it wasn't even a, a judgment call, but what's happening. And the thing that we really, um, is biting us as a community is in British Columbia here is that people are aging these Rams saying they're legal and they're not full curl and, and they're shooting age, uh, Rams that aren't aged at eight or older. And, and that's where we're running into problems. So at the end of the day, there's maybe somebody can question the, you know, if if we should be shooting younger rams like that but you're it's not there's nothing illegal you can go and do that but the one thing that you should you can't do is shoot something that's um not eight years old or older and or past the nose one of those two yeah i think i mean ultimately yeah it's it was a legal ram it's it's up to every hunter to make their own decision as a organization as a group we're trying to or you guys i should say are trying to push people towards a certain way that's science based on what has more of a long-term vision for the species and hoping you know that for generations to come i've got a son that's not two yet and i hope he gets to have a moment similar to what i had right so um i kind of look at it with that mindset that it's not just about me and what i get to do in the next five ten years but what my son's going to be able to do what his children will be able to do one day um so yeah i didn't do anything wrong but for me in the back of my mind, it's something that didn't sit well with me. Um, and it's, it's not something that I would do again. Um, and it's one of those things too. Like if you've been in the mountains, if you've truly been in the mountains and watched them, you really appreciate the animals. And, um, if I'm just going out for a meat animal, I can go shoot deer, things like that, but I'm perfectly happy going on sheep hunts and coming home empty handed. I just want to be up there. And, uh, you know, after this year, my kind of stone sheep, baseline has definitely taken a step up every year if you do, if you are successful kind of your your baseline for what you'd expect to want to pull the trigger again takes a big leap every time and you learn from the experience you grow from it 
Um, this time, I definitely want him to be, I wanted him to be over eight and if possible, full curl. Uh, it was more age this time than it was based on uh, full length. Like would I have shot a farther background if I was 100% confident that he was over eight or nine or plus? Yes. Um, but one thing I will say as well that I've really learned to rely on, and I mentioned it, was the adapter for my phone on a spotting scope and filming. So I went back after that ram got up and chased the smaller ram and chased him off. The number of times I watched that video and I freeze framed it and I took screenshots and I studied it and I counted annuli and I waited till he took another step, tried to make sure there was no false annuli. I did that. I had three hours plus to do that while he was napping. And then once he got up, I still confirmed two more times in the spotter before switching to my rifle. So, um, but that adapter for putting your phone on the spotting scope, I can't tell you how much footage I have on my phone of Rams that I've been using to, to look at them through it and to be able to go back and freeze frame and not question your mind. Yeah, I think I saw it, but to be able to 100% see it on your phone and feel confident in it. Um, I think that's a tool that like every sheep hunter should have in their backpack and that's no sponsorship, no paid endorsement, but just from my experience, it's invaluable. And that is a piece of gear that I will 100% always have in the field with me. What, so, which one, which one was that Joe? Cause I mean, like I, <clears throat> you know, I've been with you on hunts and stuff and it, there's no, and I've, you know, you've worked with these scope adapters and every scope's different. Every phone's different. I mean, you have to buy the case for the phone that you have, but I mean, that one's magnetic and you just snap it on <clears throat> vertical or horizontal. You always shoot horizontal and never shoot vertical video. Um, you snap it on and it's like instantly in the exact right spot. No matter, there's no fooling around or anything. The magnetic just clicks it right into spot. I have to say that to me is, is one of the best just for that, that it's always in the perfect spot, ready to go at any moment. It's, it's a more expensive one. That one that I used on this trip was called the Allin, O-L-L-I-N, the Allin adapter. And it is, it's a little cumbersome. It's got a weird little kick out on the phone case for the magnets, um, but it clips on so quick. So it does, that's actually how I was able to film so quickly on my own. I've ran a few different ones over the years. I had another one called the phone scope adapter. That one takes longer to set up, but you can adapt it to any spotter or any binos or rifle scope. You can put on any optics. And it's a cheaper ad adapter to any phone case. It's a little magnetic piece that sticks on the back of your phone case. So there's like three or four good options on the market right now. Um, there's more budget-friendly ones, but they're a bit more of a pain in the tail when you're setting them up, especially if you're in a time crunch. The all-in's probably the higher end on the budget and more specified to the specific optics and phone, but it definitely, um, for ease of use, is hands down the best one that I've used for ease of use. And again, no sponsorship, no paid, nothing, just honest feedback. <clears throat> yeah, that was my question. You stole it. Good one, uh, Jesse. Thanks. Um, <laughs> I, I use a different brand. I can't even think of the name of it right now, and I'm not going to call them out. But uh, I didn't. I didn't like it. I'm going to try the Oland. Um, good. And I've gone through through. I did phone scope the first time. The thing was phone scope. That's a pain in the ass. Is every time you switch um, phones, you got to go get get a new adapter, and it's hundred bucks or whatever. So. Um, or whatever, even more, I think. So um, I'd not, anyway, I thought I'd try this other one. I didn't like it. It was okay, but it was a lot of Mickey mousing around. And I like the concept of something that's instant. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's mm -hmm. a lot. It's depending how much time you have and whatever, everybody's preference is different. But uh, that's the one I used and it worked great. So, 
I, I do have to say this is this is transitioning away from phone scope and footage stuff. I do have to say though, you know, I you know, I went on my first sheep hunt this year. Um we don't need to talk about what happened. Um, but I didn't come home with a sheep. Um and you know, I've been on mountain hunts before. I I got my goat and and blah blah, blah and it's like, you know, a goat eats okay. Um, but it's like, okay, I got a goat. I could probably go after other stuff. So I kind of had the mentality of like, you know, once I get a sheep, especially stone sheep, then I'll kind of chill out and go hunt another species or something else. But after I tasted stone sheep, like that is a sheep worth killing every year. (laughs) That's insane. It was so good. Yeah. So Kyle, I don't know if you're aware, but uh, Jesse actually came out for the second half of my hunt after I had taken the stone sheep. Um, and some of the wolves and he came up and joined me for the second half of my hunt so I could complete my my caribou hunt and uh, when he showed up I I met him with the with the horns and I let him check him out and everything and then I cooked him up some fresh stone sheep I think we had the tenderloins that night actually yeah yeah and uh, there was not a bad ounce of meat on that ram I mean from what we've eaten I've eaten a bunch of it already because it's so stinking tasty my wife and son love it too but we got a bunch still in the freezer and uh, it's, it's gotta be one of the best table fairs when it comes to bush meat for sure. Hands down, hands down by far. Yeah. I'm with you. And I, I don't find big horns like that. I've, I've had big horn before and it's, it's good, but yeah, there's something about thin horn and dolls amazing too, but stone and dull sheep are just, I don't know. There's something about them. I'm not sure what <laughs> it is. So yeah. Amazing. So are we going to talk caribou? We, we're an hour in. So how are we doing for time? Do you want to talk caribou or are we going to bring you back? Are we going to do part two? You guys tell me I'm good on part two. I'm good for uh, kind of delving into that right now too. It's whatever makes you good. Let's do it. We're here. Woo. Okay. Okay. So right. anyway, Joe, I, I just want to say congrats on that Ram, man. That thing is what an awesome old monarch. And I, I couldn't think of anyone more deserving. And then the humility and, and humbleness. And, and again, you know, to, to share your story about, um, you know, your, your experience last year and, and, uh, good on you, man. So just, uh, it makes me so happy to see a guy like yourself get a ram like that. So. Thank you very much. It certainly means a lot coming from someone such as yourself, who's spent a lot of time in the Hills and in a position that you are, it, it definitely means a lot. And, uh, yeah, j- just extremely fortunate to have taken that ram and, and not something I would have expected this season. Um, but uh, definitely one of the highlights of my career up till now. And it, it might be time to focus on a different species of sheep for a bit, <clears throat> just because, uh, yeah, I kind of, it's going to be tough to top that one for the next little bit, I think. And awesome. I will say a little plug to the salute to conservation, February 22nd to 25th, Kyle. February yeah, 2324. 2324 in Penticton, BC this year. And Kyle, I haven't told you, but John is working hard on that sheep right away. And I promised him that I'd get that that sheep shown at the show. Center stage yeah. up on uh full mount. So if you want to see Joe's sheep, it'll be at the show for sure. Yeah. And Joe's gonna be at the show, right? I will absolutely be at the show unless you guys have changed the plans and locked the doors on me. (laughs) So we got a star-studded lineup um, of people for the show. And um, and of course, front and center is yourself. And, you know, we haven't really talked about what you're going to talk about. 
Um, have you got any thoughts about what kind of you're going to be doing a couple seminars for us? Um, and love to, you know, any thoughts on what you might want to present on? Uh, you know, we've kicked around a few different ideas. I think I'll do some, uh, some outreaches on my socials and see what people are interested in hearing about while we're there. Um, one thing I'm always kind of partial towards is through my entire career through athletics and everything, I've been trained a bunch on, you know, the difference between locker room talk and media room talk. And I do think the one thing that we as hunters struggle with nowadays is understanding what conversations we should be having amongst ourselves and other hunters behind closed doors and what kind of unified front we should maybe be putting in the media. Um, so one thing, whether it's going to be a full seminar on it or at least partial discussion, I would like to bring up some of the conversations on, um, you know, where we draw that line. I'm, my opinion isn't that people should change the dialogue. We shouldn't hide what we do. We shouldn't be ashamed of what we do. We shouldn't sugarcoat things, but we should present it in a way that makes it palatable to the non-hunter. Um, so I think that would be a discussion I'd really like to discuss um, and, and bring up and see what kind of feedback we get to that. But in general, I'm open to, to multiple different discussions while we're there. Right on. Well, Anyone that uh, has any doubt about you talking about that subject, just do a Google search and go CBC Joe Pell Cougar Hunting. Oh, you know it's going to come up. And and that interview, I didn't even know it at the time. Somebody said, "Check this out." I'm like, "Holy shit, who is this guy? We, we need this guy to talk more about hunting and and what <laughs> we do." So, uh, no, you do a good job of arti- great job of articulating it, Joe. And it's always a, a strong message. And uh, and anyone that's not following Joe on social, just look at Joe's the post that you did about wolves um, last couple weeks ago or a month ago. And I was, again, I'm like, that's the message we need to share like that. Yeah. How do, how do we communicate that better? I'm like, just whatever Joe does do that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. I deserve that. I just know that the opposition, the other side, the side that's trying to shut us down, they're really good at spinning things in a way that communicates really strongly to the middle 70 to 80% that doesn't know where they stand. Cause there's, there's probably 10% plus on either side, give or take that's really polar in their positions. Our side, we kind of go, I want to speak the way I speak uh, because that's how I've always talked and you got to deal with it. Whereas the other side's really good at speaking to that 70% in the middle that doesn't know where they go. And that's, that's the group that's going to really dictate where our rights as hunters goes in the future. So we kind of, I think it's important to communicate effectively and properly to that middle group sometimes more so than the in-between. So um, yeah, I took wolves on the hunt, um, but I tried to spin it in, you know, it's not an anti-wolf story. It's a pro caribou story. And that's kind of the direction because the other side is just talking about, oh, if you shoot wolves, it's just an anti-wolf thing. And I'm like, no, there's so much more to predator management than just that. But I think as hunters, we, we know that. So we take it for granted. And we don't feel like we have to discuss that and bring it up because like it to us, it's so obvious. You don't even have to mention it. So most people don't mention it, but unfortunately to that other group, which is the largest group of individuals in the province, in the country, they don't know that. So when they see our posts, it's really easy for them to grab it, do a one, a one-liner post that's polarized in the opposite direction. And we're vilified, even though our intentions are, you know, authentic, are genuine, like we're trying to do the right thing. Um, I really think that we fall short sometimes. And I'm saying we because I'm I, I'm not perfect in it either. Um, but I do think that at times we shoot ourselves in the foot because we're doing the right thing. 
we're we have the right intentions behind it we're just not communicating it properly all the time yeah well said all right we talking caribou or what (laughs) well i was just gonna say that the the transition is you know you talk about how wolves 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 why can't i say that it's wolves wolves are uh pro caribou and you know that's i think john said it you know you killed those three wolves and then was it five days later we saw the first caribou in that valley after the wolves were gone you were there with wolves no caribou remove some wolves all of a sudden caribou start showing up because the wolves aren't around so doesn't get much more pro caribou yeah, than that there was seven, there were six or seven wolves in the pack we removed three um and then the other ones left the area um because we did not see them anymore and then yeah immediately well not immediately but after a period of a few days we started seeing caribou come through the area again um and yeah i mean the amount of wolf sign we saw when we went in there was unbelievable like it was alarming um and it felt really good and again i understand the hypocrisy of i'm in there trying to shoot a caribou and i kill a wolf and i say i'm doing a good thing because i just killed a caribou killer Meanwhile, I've got a caribou tag in my pocket, right? Um, so I understand the hypocrisy of it and how that looks. But remember, a pack of seven wolves or six wolves are going to go through a lot of caribou in a season. Mm-hmm. And they're set up across this entire corridor in a web. And they'll, they're opportunist killers. So if a group of caribou come through and they can kill multiple caribou, they will. It's just the way they operate. And that's going to have a much larger impact than me being in there and harvesting one bull and removing him. And, and you know, that's... So yes, it's a hypocritic reason or, a, you know, to, to kill the wolves, but I do like to think that that did have a positive impact on the number of caribou that'll be able to flow through there. Um, and one thing that I've always said is, you know, caribou are so sensitive and their the process or the attempts to reintroduce these caribou into different areas, so expensive, so challenging and not overly successful to try and reintroduce caribou. But if you wipe every wolf, and I'm not, I'm not saying we should, but if you wipe every wolf out of that area and build the caribou numbers back up, you could airdrop five, 10 wolves back in that area. And that population is going to be healthy like that. They will bounce back. So I think, we, you know, it's one of those situations where you got the bully and you got the victim and we got to pick which side. And I, I'm in that situation. Like, let's let's help the victims here. Let's help stand up for the caribou and uh, the wolves will the wolves aren't going anywhere. Yeah. Well said. So tell us about this caribou hunt. <laughs> yeah, tell you about the caribou, the caribou hunt that I, the, yeah, I mean, we were seeing everything but caribou for a lot of the hunt. Um, we saw some good moose too, but it was a, it was a challenge. Um, we weren't seeing much of anything when it comes to caribou. We were seeing some good sheds and old sign. Um, we knew we were kind of in the right area, but uh, yeah, after, we picked Jesse up. We got back out there. The wolves had kind of cleared out. And then we did see, we saw uh, a decent bull, a young bull with two cows were the first caribou we saw come through the area. Actually, no, that's a lie. I had seen one really like immature bull with two cows previously. Um, and then we kind of went in, closed in on these ones that Jesse and I saw and got a good look. But 
Um, again, so they have to be five above the kicker, which the kicker is kind of the rear point halfway up the main beam on a caribou. So five points, legal points above the kicker or six up top if there's no kicker present. And the one bull we saw, he had four up top on both sides. Nice big frame, but just uh, didn't have the fifth. He had good kickers as well. Um, and then <laughs> we've been hunting one day and we weren't seeing anything. We spotted some moose off in the distance and jesse's shaking his head right now because um how far was that distance joe 3.64 miles away <laughs> and I, I talk in miles and that bugs jesse a lot but it was 3.64 miles away um i know that because i knew the exact location they were there by a, a bit of a landmark and i could pull it up on my onyx and i measured it i'm like only 3.64 miles away we've got two and a half hours of daylight left jesse and mind you there's no trails it's uneven nasty ground with like patches of seven foot tall willows and swamps and marshes and hills and jesse looks at me and goes and there's a nice bull in there and jesse goes uh there's there's a ridge right there we could probably close to that ridge and get a better look and in joe's mind that means <laughs> Tighten up your boots. Let's go full tilt and see if we can get to within 300 yards of these things. <laughs> so, <laughs> and maybe I'll yeah. let Jesse take over the story there for a little bit. Well, I mean, yeah, it was, uh, he's like, I'm not sure if that's the one that we want, but uh, it is a bull. We haven't been seeing stuff and it's, you know, and you talk about pressure of episodes, you know, we're here to get an episode. Now I've been, you know, flown in and the other camera guy injured guy had to go home so it's like there's an extra expense now we have to deliver an episode We're not seeing caribou we do see a really good moose this could be the chance to do it so yeah i said oh let's close the distance make sure it's the one in my head i'm like yeah we you know we go down a kilometer and close the distance and and just see what he's like and um so i'm getting around i'm getting some shots and blah 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 and then joe's just gone like not just gone, but like running and I'm like, oh, okay, I'm sure we'll collect. And so I'm like starting to walk faster and then I'm starting to like skip down over the moss and then kind of like sliding down the banks and he's still keeping that, that distance and starts pushing it beyond. So I'm like, okay, I guess we're just still going. And this went on for, I think we did it in under an hour. Yeah. It was, it was 46 minutes, 46 minutes, five kilometers guys. <laughs> through buckbrush through like there's no trails there's that there, at one point it was kind of fine i don't know if joe knew it but he was we were going up this ridge so i knew the spot that we were going to but i lost him and i started to like go veer off a direction kind of this little drainage that didn't have buckbrush i'm like oh this is easy walking and then i see joe off to my left like a hundred yards like going up to I'm like okay and i dip back into the buckbrush and i'm just going up going up going up and then i'm just like yeah, it's 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 I've got a job to do. I'm a camera guy, but I've got my <laughs> head down blah, 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 and I get up to him just huffing and puffing, hold my breath and just roll the camera, get an update, blah, 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 and, blah, 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 and then Joe takes off again to the next little ridge point. And at that point, I I kind of like I'm supposed to go, but I was like, I kind of said, fuck, fuck you, Joe. And I dropped a knee and I took a sip of water. So I was like, I need water. I need something. And then I could hear him in my mic. Say, Just Jesse, let's go. Let's go. Like, oh, okay, let's go. And then I get up and get up behind him and we get to the ridge and we get there and 
What do you see, Joe? When we get to the ridge, uh, we didn't see anything. <laughs> first, to be perfectly honest. And that's kind of why. So when I started going, I, I the decision in my mind was that if I'm covering any ground, we're going farther and farther away from camp. And tonight's going to suck no matter what at this point, because yeah. we're going to be going through swamps, marshes, everything in the dark. So this is going to suck. So I better make it worth it. That's that's basically the decision right. in my mind. So I'm like, if we're going, we're going to see this animal. So like full tilt sprint. And I kid you not, like me, six foot eight striding. I, I kid you not. When there was no bush, I was legitimately like jogging downhill. Oh, I know. Um, and then, yeah, we get up there. No bull. This is where I make a big screw up. I'm all <laughs> jacked up on Mountain Dew. And I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to do some cow calls. It's been a while since I've done some cow calls, but I'm going to do some cow calls, see if I can pull this bull out. I do some cow calls, not expecting anything because my cow calls are very unpolished. And all of a sudden we hear an antler pop in the trees just off to our right. And both Jesse and I hear it. I'm like, holy smokes, there's a bull in there. Now, if I had a brain between my ears, I would have knelt down in the willows that we were in and waited for this bull to walk out and show himself. Instead, I'm like, oh, we're running out of daylight. We're going to push in on this thing. So we push in towards where he was. We ended up spotting a bull and two cows off by a little lake. So we closed in, got within 400 yards of them. Good bull, but if I shoot a bull in this area, we're giving up two days minimum out of the hunt to pack him out. And I, at that point, I had him in the crosshairs and I just said, I'm not willing to pass up on, you know, two days of caribou hunting to shoot this moose right now. So we pass up on him and Jesse's super happy with me for getting all the way in there. <laughs> and then, but in my mind, I'm like, okay, we closed the distance. We got this moose in the crosshairs. I did the right thing all the way through. As we're hiking, we ended up getting back to camp at like one or just after one in the morning. Um, and, and it kind of dawns on me, wait a second. That bull, if he was in that position, was not the bull I heard popping in the trees. And we knew in the area, I know from what I had seen previously, there was a big, like, big, big boy. Like, you shoot him and you give up three days if you have to out of the hunt to take him out of there. He was a book boy. Yeah, yeah, book bull for sure. Bigger than the one I took on my previous hunt, if you've seen this guy right here behind me. Um, and there was a smaller bull in the area. So... When I look back at it, I know we're on another tangent, but when I look back at it, the smaller bull with the two cows by the lake was a little guy, which means the big bull, the the monster guy, was popping trees on his way out to come to us when I was cow calling. And in my boneheaded stubbornness, I we decided, ran away from him. Let's go another 600 meters in the opposite direction of camp instead of staying here and shooting the, the bull we want to get. Um. So, yeah, we got back. We were hiking through the snow and the rain and. Yeah, but it was a long night to get back, but we eventually did. And then I think the weather started to close in on us after that. Yeah, so this this is kind of the kick yourself in the arse kind of moment. I said I didn't want to give two days out of the hunt to pack a moose out of the bush because I was on a caribou hunt and that was my focus. The next day we wake up in the morning and we go up to a different ridge to try and do some glassing and the fog rolls in on us so thick jesse and i are sitting next to each other and i couldn't tell you how many fingers he was holding up it was just disgusting and cold and nasty and we sat i made jesse sit out there until <laughs> like visibility i kept saying it's going to improve and it got worse every 20 minutes i'd say if it gets any worse in 20 minutes we're gonna uh we'll pack up and then i think it was probably 
close to five hours. We sat there and then finally we said, okay, back to camp. Two full days socked in with fog and where we had been sitting at that point, we were at quite a high elevation and uh, yeah, two full days socked in with complete like pea soup fog in camp. I've already pushed the hunt a week past its projected deadline. Jesse's up there. We're checking the forecast on our, on our apps, on our phone, and it's not showing any improvement. Like this hunt's over. We're up here burning daylight. Our wives are mad at us for no reason at this point. We like we should be at home. Um, and I'm in my mind like, Kate, how can I convince Jesse to just keep sticking this out? How can I tell my wife I'll make it up to her when I get home? And how can I tell the network not to worry about this racking up bill and everything? Like, I know I'm getting myself in hot water. And uh, finally, the one night, I'm like, Jesse, we're going to wake up tomorrow. And the plan is just to start hiking up and we're going to go and try and call a bull moose in. And realistically, we'd have to pull a bull moose into probably 40 yards to ID and get a good shot. Um, so I'm like, we're going to go out to some areas where we've seen these moose and we're going to try and pull a bull moose into 40 yards. Um, we just could have shot that other moose and wasted two days packing them out because we just <laughs> wasted two days hanging out at camp. But we're going to make the most of it. We're going to get an episode. Um, there's no chance you're going to be able to find a caribou in this unless you just randomly pick a rock and the caribou bumps into that rock. So like our moods and our, our, our vibe, if you will, was like at boot level. Um, yeah, so we got up that morning hoping for some clearing, but it was like, I remember unzipping the tent and I'm like taking my morning piss. I'm just like, oh, it's just like worse. It's thicker. Here we go. Let's just go move our legs. Is that yeah. was my expectation? Like, yeah, like let's maybe just there's, move. Maybe there's a blind deaf animal that we can bump into. <laughs> and we're hiking, and in my mind, it's a hundred percent wash of a day. We're just gonna get out and hike just to see what happens, just so we're not sitting in the tent again. And as we're going, we just start kind of climbing and gaining elevation a little bit just to get to this one plateau we wanted to go check had a nice swamp where like that one uh, where those two moose had actually been. So we're going over there and probably around eight fifteen. So we'd been hiking for maybe two plus hours. We start seeing like it's thick, thick, but we saw this like faint sliver. I'm like, that almost looks like blue in that gray chunk up there. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's keep climbing. So we just started gaining elevation and we got to this one kind of base of this pretty steep mountain. And um, we could almost start seeing like silhouettes and it looked like, okay, maybe the fog sunk down enough that there might be some visibility if we go right to the top, to the crest of this mountain. So my, started- my mood changed in that too, because like as a camera guy, you know, dealing with moisture and cameras and lenses is, I mean, it's doable. It's just, you have to manage things and you have to keep things dry and you have to check the lens and make sure it's not fogged up. And look, this was thick enough fog that you're just inside a cloud. There's moisture everywhere. So, uh, you know, I was prepared for all of this. And then all of a sudden it's like, did you just see blue Joe? Cause I just saw blue. Can we maybe like go up into the clearing? I was like starting to get a little too excited just from a like, also, we haven't seen the sun in two and a half days and to get up there. And then it's like, oh, man, we could go and we could like hunt the mountains and be up above it. And I could just like film and, and not worry about all this moisture. Um, and then, yeah, we saw the silhouettes and then we started to break through. And it's just like, oh, my God, this is actually going to happen. We're going to go up into the mountains instead of sitting down in the foggy swamps. Let's. This is going to be amazing. We're going to spend the whole day on the mountains. It's going to be awesome. 
and if anybody who's ever skied, any of you listeners at home or Cal, like, I believe you ski, like, you know, when you're going up the chairlift and sometimes like you're at the base of the mountain and it's just a foggy, rainy, nasty day. And all of a sudden you come through the top and it's like crisp bluebird. Holy crap. I forgot my sunscreen kind of moment. <laughs> That's what it felt like. Like we're hiking along and I checked my watch. It was nine 20 in the morning. It was like, you could taste the difference in the air from one step to the other. It was just like this kind of boiling fog level that went out. And as soon as you crested it, whole new world, whole new hunt. Like mm-hmm. the grass is dry. The sun's out. It's blue skies. It's warm. Your clothes aren't like damp. You don't have those little dew beads everywhere. And we kind of stop and I'm like, holy smokes, like this is real. And you could see, I have a video of it on my phone. The fog was rolling and it was lapping up and down on this, this ridge where we were like a wave. It would come up and then it would pull Mm -hmm. back, come up. And I'm like, holy smokes, like we're actually going to be able to hunt the tops. Maybe the caribou have pushed up to the tops and they're hanging out in the tops too, where there's visibility. There's a hope for today. And all it was, was a glimmer of like a, a maybe, maybe, maybe. So like (laughs) we're, we're tickled. Like, five-year-olds that had just been handed ice cream cones and we're going along and I'm like Kate this is going to happen like we can hunt the whole day this is and I kind of pull out my phone pull out my maps I'm like this is where we want to head to this is what we're going to do these areas should all be above the fog line we should have visibility so we start making our way around this one kind of shoulder and it, it goes into a bit of a draw so we're making our way around and we stop and I do some glassing and I'm like yeah I knew there had been some old trail like uh, game trails above here and everything so i glass i'm like yep nothing in this basin let's keep going and all of a sudden we're making our way across and you know like the spidey senses tingle sometimes and i stop and i look up and there is a caribou skylined like picture perfect you could not script it better perfectly skylined on the ridge blue bird sky behind it and i look and naked eye i'm like caribou binos up boom it's a bull I look back, I'm like, Jesse, Jesse, caribou. And it's a bull. <laughs> Jesse's eyes are like pie plates. Like, I don't know how <laughs> the, the whites in his eyes didn't scare the caribou off because he was so like, holy, <laughs> excited. And I dropped to the ground, pull my spot. Joe, out. how far was he? Roughly. So at that point, I think, I can't remember. So I was watching the video. At one point, I say he's at 500 yards. But okay. I think he was only at, he was just shy of 400. Yeah, just under 400, I think you said. Yeah, so I think he was, I think I might have, yeah. So I think. He and he was, saw us. He was staring right at us. But we were, we were well below him and we were in kind of solids, but neutral tones. So like tans and greens. So we kind of blended in really well with the ground we were in, but he stopped, he looked at us and we kind of froze and then he went back to feeding. So I'm like, okay, spotter out on the tripod and I'm looking and on the one side, he's got a nice or yeah, he's got the kicker, but he only had four up top. And I'm like, oh no. Or no, I don't even know if he had the kicker on that side. And then all of a sudden the other side, I look five up top, but I couldn't see whether or not he had a kicker because of his position. All of a sudden he turns and I'm like, Jesse, he's got a kicker. Like he's a legal bull. Yeah, I remember so, hearing in my ear because I have earpieces in with his mic. And he goes, he's legal, he's legal, legal bull. That's pretty funny. So I'm like, okay, shoot him. <laughs> but I'm like, yeah, I, I, I've watched the video now. I take my time. I, you know, pull everything out, get my scope dialed. I was not messing around. Long story short, I get set up and... Uh, well, while you're getting set up, it's kind of funny. I'm from behind filming, so I'm trying to capture him getting ready. And then I'm, 
up to the caribou. I'm trying to anticipate and like I, I want to get the kill shot when it's happening. And he's sitting down there and I hear in my piece, it was like earplugs. And he's like fumbling with a bag. I'm like, are you getting putting earplugs in? Shoot the damn thing. What are you doing, Joe? And he's like fumbling with the bag. He's like getting his earplugs. I'm like, oh my God, this caribou's gonna run away. But uh yeah, it, I will admit I was getting my earplugs out of my bag. So like I dialed my I went into my castle, got all my info, dialed my scope. Had everything set up, scopes leveled on the bipod, spotters on the tripod. I confirmed again he's legal like three times. Because silhouetted, you never know. Like sometimes things can kind of overlap. And I was like, last thing I want to do is make a mistake. So I confirm he was legal, go back to my gear, then look through the spotter again, confirm he's legal again. Um, and if I, I shoot a 300 PRC and it's got an aggressive muzzle break on it. So you're not going to, sh- I've shot that sucker without earplugs before. <laughs> I go on enough hunts a year where it's like, if I want to be able to hear in three years, I got to wear earplugs. So I'm messing around with my earplugs, throw them in, but yeah, I get down perfect shot. It actually blew the top of his heart off. Went in the one side, blew the top of his heart off. He made it like four or five steps. Then he did one backward step and just bed down beds down or not beds down hits the dirt though, but like perfectly silhouetted still on this ridge line, bluebird skies behind him. Like, just a big caribou antler, like like a a flag come to me at the top of the ridge line, just like no doubt. And then if you if you tune in and watch the episode, you'll get to see a six foot eight man turn into a two year old kid at Christmas <laughs> in the blink of an eye. Because after that, I jump up and I am so giddy. I run over. I think I gave Jesse a big hug and I flopped around on the ground and. I I was just, it was just such an emotional roller coaster. Here I am, wake up in the morning, you think the hunt's going to go nowhere. You're two days into just bad weather. Then all of a sudden you get a glimmer of hope and you're like, at least we have a glimmer of hope. Break the fog line, get in the fog. I'm like, at least we can hunt today. It's not going to be a waste of a day. But in your mind, you're like, what are the odds of actually, you know, putting this together? We've barely been seeing caribou out here yet. Two, it was, it was 952. 952 when I pulled the, when I pulled the trigger and I'm talking to the camera the caribou's already on the ground so in 30 minutes we went from being in thick fog no visibility to bull on the ground in the perfect spot like just you couldn't have painted a prettier picture um like just gorgeous country and then to go up and recover them and, and it was just such a cool beautiful hunt I'll say um you know he's not a record book caribou he, he's a great caribou but he's not a record book caribou but i said it on camera too i was like he might as well have been a world-class like world record caribou i couldn't have been any more excited about it that hunt when i pictured and i mentioned i wanted to do a caribou hunt for quite a while now when i pictured a mountain caribou hunt i got every ounce every little bit of exactly what i wanted out of it and the way it finished too was just it was just perfect i couldn't have planned a better hunt so for me it's about the experience it's about the hunt obviously the goal is always trying to take a mature class animal um but it doesn't have to be the biggest animal in my books like just a good mature animal and a a quality hunt to me i'll take that over a huge trophy any day so um yeah it was we had a ton of fun it was a blast and there i mean we're getting close to the getting close to the rut the caribou rut so i mean and, and that's the that's what i've heard about caribou is that you know if you get a rutted out caribou it's almost not even worth trying to salvage yeah. or eat but we ate some of that guy out in the field and 
It was, and I remember when we were uh, processing them too, I'm like, this is, does not smell ready at all. This smells like nice and clean. And, and um, yeah, he was tasted delicious. That, that was part of the reason, uh, Kyle, you got your hand up. I'll let you go in a second. But uh, part of the reason why we actually did go and switch to moose for that one little bit is everybody said, it was funny. Everybody goes like hard date. If you shoot a caribou after the 17th, it's going to be garbage. And, but we hadn't seen any rut activity from any caribou yet, but they're like, they'll be rutted. They'll be nasty. Shoot a caribou after the 17th, um, this, that, and the other, but yeah, that, so we had decided for me, I'm big about bringing the meat home. Um, and, uh, yeah, like that bull, no stink to him, cooked a bunch up at camp, delicious. Um, I did do that whole Steve Rinella meat eater, eat the fat out from behind the eyeball. And I will tell you, I took a little pinch at first and then I went in like two fingers knuckle deep and dug a whole bunch out after that and ate a bunch. Like it's tasty. Um, but yeah, I've, I've cooked it for my wife, cooked it for my son. I've cooked it for some other friends. And now, uh, like my son, he comes to the freezer. He, he loves wild game meat and he goes to the freezer and he tries to open the freezer and he goes, Kabu, Kabu, Kabu. <laughs> Cause I've cooked it for him twice since I've been home, but he does. And like, if I pull meat out, he's like, Oh, Kabu. And I'm like, yeah. So I'll cook him up some for dinner. So he definitely wasn't rutted. He wasn't stinky. Like maybe if you shoot them in dead rut, they're bad. But so far with my extensive one caribou experience, <laughs> delicious. <laughs> I, I had the same thing. I same, like right on the verge of the rut, he was running around with the cows, but I think we just got it early enough. And, you know, by far that's probably my wife's favorite wild meat um yes. uh, it's not mine i preferred the the sheep but that's a close second for sure so yeah love love caribou and but what i was gonna say what, one of the points i wanted to make is that you know how many sheep hunts or, or mountain hunts have ended where where you know there's bad weather like you guys had and like well what's the point right what's the point mm -hmm. you don't you don't leave your tent and and that just goes to show you that you're never going to kill something sitting in your tent you might kill something like a really nice caribou if you get out of your freaking tent and go for a walk. Right. So. Yeah. I mean, I've had hunts end that way. Um, I've had hunts where I've packed up and been like, yeah, there's a storm rolling in. We got to get out of here, that kind of thing before. And I, to be perfectly honest in my mind, I thought that's where this hunt was going. And that's kind of why that one morning when we woke up, I was just, I wasn't ready to throw the towel in quite yet. And I just said, you know what? I got itchy feet. We got to go hiking today. And uh, lo and behold, uh, picture perfect finish to a great hunt. Um, no, it was it was a ton of fun. There was a few more interesting things that happened after that. You know, the tax man showed up and tried to put a bit of pressure on us. Uh, we're processing the the caribou, and we had a big stomper grizz start pushing in towards us. Oh wow! Nice. But, uh, Did you get it well, on camera? We got the the grizz on camera. Yeah, I got some footage of them. But just the way the wind was going, we were able to because um, they're big stinking animals and we were really high up. So we, we took meat, we stashed it in the rocks. We, you know, urinated all around it. We piled rocks on top of it and covered it up. I took the gut pile and the scraps, put them in a different area. That was a more prominent spot, sliced the gut pile, left it kind of for bait, you know, pull it that direction while we stashed everything out. And we, we spread the rest out in multiple different stashes too. That way, you know, if, if the Grizz did find one, we'd be able to recover some of the other stuff. But, uh, it we must have just had a you know a horseshoe up somewhere because we got back there the next day to recover the rest because that was towards the um the way it all worked out we had to come back the next day to recover the, the remainder of it 
and nothing still to that point, nothing had been touched, like not even the gut. Nice. So wow. uh, something, something was going in our favor there. Cause I thought for sure we we're going to lose at least one game bag, but uh, we pulled it all out of there and yeah, it worked out well. We uh, pulled thanks. it all out of there. A big, <laughs> I was just going to say a big thanks because Jesse hauled a lot. I had an extra hauler back. So he had his camera bag on his backpack and I think he thought he was safe. But uh, back at base camp, I had a meat hauler waiting. So that the next day when we went back in to grab some more, um, I kind of looked over at Jesse and I was like, you're running bare bones camera today and here's the backpack. And he, but ear to ear grinning, like, absolutely, let's go. And I think you matched me. You matched me pound for pound on on the pack out um, for the final pack out. So it, how far happened. were you from camp? How far do you have to pack them back to camp? Um, Roughly, give or take. I'm trying to remember how far back it was. I think we were. Uh, I don't remember. It's all blur. It was all painful blur. <laughs> I, know, I know how far we were when we went after the moose because I, I distinctly like checked the distance, but I can't actually tell you how far we were from the from Caribou to camp. I'd have to look that one up. Far yeah. far enough. My knee still hurts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a good one. But it, there's something that just feels so good about that weight. It just. You know, and I trained all year for my sheep hunt and stuff and carried stuff around and whatever. But when you have that like meat weight in your bag, it's uh well, especially when you have a hundred pounds of it, it um it it yeah, it's it's almost like and I know I know people that, that talk about it, but it's almost like a uh, what do you call that, like spiritual flogging or whatever, you know, those guys that like whip their backs and stuff as a spiritual journey you know it's just like like that like torturous journey that just feels so right like that you're earning it and that you're doing it and you know you're also you know giving justice to that animal it's a weird duality because it's like physically you're loaded down completely but like emotionally and mentally the weight is off of the hunt because you've completed right your, your mission your journey of harvesting an animal so like there's weight off, but physical weight on, but it's like this weird, strange fulfillment of, of hiking out. But one thing I've said, and people think I'm kind of crazy for it is I, I truly love the pack. Out. And Jesse, you seem to truly love the pack out too. But the truth is like, as a hunter, we all only have so many heavy pack outs left in us either yeah, because, you know, for one reason or another, there's going to be a day where we're not able to pack that meat off the mountain. We're not going to be able to go up to those same places and do all of that. So it's like you you have to enjoy that struggle when you have it, because I guarantee, um, you know, one day if you're sitting there on the couch and you're not able to get up there on the hills and do it, you're going to be missing moments just like those. So you got to soak it up while you can, even the shitty stuff. <laughs> you're talking about the pack out. I couldn't stop laughing. I had to mute myself. Uh, when we killed our caribou, one of my buddies was helping us with the pack and he, he killed his the day before, a couple days before, whatever it was. And the two of us were packing back. So <laughs> we're crossing this area and it was really slick. You could tell there was some rocks and it had some moss on it. And uh, I went to, I went to cross it. Actually it was frozen because it was late season. Right. I went to cross it and I'm like, okay, I just walked around it. Well, this guy's buddy of ours and he's just absolutely careless and he just walks straight across it and he just goes down like a rock and of course we're like heavy like 100 pounds right and he's like ah just starts screaming 
<laughs> and uh we thought we thought for sure he'd broken a leg right he just like um and actually in the end it turned out that he did crack ribs but he he was oh jeez but it just you know it was just like so obvious don't step there with especially with a heavy pack and he just went zooming straight across i'm like yeah sure enough down uh i just i i still i feel bad because he obviously was in a lot of pain and like for months too because it <laughs> cracked ribs but it was the funniest thing to watch yeah uh, man those those packs are i remember just one we were sitting down having a break and i remember i just went to go up and the pack just pulled me over i was like oh okay i'll just roll around but i was like i might not get up this thing's so flipping heavy I but i, I, I got it but it was like okay yeah i remember that that specific moment we were in the buck brush on that one last kind of incline but uh yeah it got to the point where you're you're bagged you're tired and you're looking at spots that you like I could maybe take a, a seat there and get a quick rest, but like that means I have to get up again. Right. <laughs> is, it, is it worth it? <laughs> because it's becoming so laborsome to try and get back on my feet after sitting down or you sit on a rock, like there's an, uh, a rock that's the right height. You know, like I can sit on it, your ass will fit on it, but your bag doesn't. So it like pulls yeah. you over backwards kind of thing. So like after yeah. a while, you kind of just do the hands on the knees, catch your breath and keep going. But uh, yeah. Uh, awesome what a great story well so much for our hour of chit-chatting we turned this into the better part of two here but uh uh, joe awesome jesse uh this was a fun one just so cool to to relive it and it's fresh i feel like i got 100 questions for you so we're gonna have to do this again next week joe that's the bad news (laughs) the good news is you're off the hook for the rest (laughs) of tonight so (laughs) um but no uh, congratulations to you joe and, and jesse congratulations to you to be part of that and to to catch it on film and i cannot wait for the episode it's uh our episodes i guess but uh, certainly this episode is going to be epic so thank you kyle i appreciate it it was fun reliving it a little bit and uh i didn't know if jesse was going to be on the call or not jesse i'm glad you were on the call it was kind of fun reliving it a bit i'm sure you're sick of my face by now but uh <laughs> it, it was a great time out there and yeah i uh I learned a lot from the whole process and yeah, ton of fun. <clears throat> yeah. I'm glad I was here too. Uh, thanks for inviting me, Kyle. It was good to, to relive it, especially when it's just that little bit, it's still fresh enough that you're, that it's still all there and you can, I can remember all those small details. So it was good. Yeah. Awesome boys. Thanks. Uh, thanks again, Joe, for just everything that you do and for, for being on the podcast and can't wait for the show. Uh, any plugs on the show or where do people want to go to check stuff out? Let's uh, where should they go to, to check your stuff? Yeah, let's give her a plug. Um, obviously first and foremost, it's available on wild TV up here in Canada. So Canadian listeners, wild TV, you can get on wild TV or the wild TV app, which is available in Canada and the U S I think the code's Big Joe, and you get like a full year subscription for thirty bucks. You can binge watch any Wild TV content, all seasons of The Edge. Um, and then also in the U.S., because uh, you guys do have some quite a few listeners south of the border, we're on uh, Pursuit Network or Pursuit Channel and Cowboy Channel as well. So uh, we are available linear in the U.S., linear in Canada, and through the app um in both countries seems like a lot of people are really pivoting to the app these days for that kind of binge netflix binge kind of fix i don't know that you guys want to watch that much of me but you can if you want to (laughs) (laughs) Uh, yeah right on awesome joe um and socials where do they go just uh 
It's yeah, social. You can go ahead and follow me. It's Joe underscore Appel. So E P P E L E. And that's it. So just at Joe underscore Appel. You can follow me on Instagram. Um, and uh, yeah, you'll see a lot of me, my stuff. You'll see a lot of behind the scenes stuff. And uh, I always said I wasn't going to be one of those parents, but you will see a lot of my boy on there as well. Mostly just because <laughs> he's, he's just so much fun and he loves the outdoors now. So I got to get right him. on. Super stoked. Can't wait for it. And come check Joe out in person February 23rd, 24th in Penticton. We're going to start selling tickets on that in a few weeks. And uh, we can all hang out and have a few whiskeys and shoot the shit, talk sheep. Be fun. Sounds awesome. like a good time to me. Let's do it.